When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Now, I really hope that that made some sense. I know we were jumping all over this chapter, from round one to round two to round three, but I think we need to kind of combine the decks to be able to see just how much of these four issues are occurring. To blame and belittle, or demonize and dismiss, to get you to question your beliefs in order to excuse any and all behaviors. That's the approach of the Antichrist. Now, what's the Nephite approach in response? These ones are fascinating, too. We see their first response in verse 18. This is the end of round one. Thus he did preach unto them, leading away the hearts of many. So many listened. They did drop the fruit at the tree of life and headed off towards the great and spacious building. He says it there. They began lifting up their heads in their wickedness. He led away many women and also men. I think it's interesting that the women are brought out specifically, almost suggesting, wow, he really was successful. Throughout the history of Christianity, actually religion in general, women have always outnumbered men. I don't want to overgeneralize or stereotype, but women tend to be more spiritual than men, often because women do not confine their epistemology in the same way that men tend to. So it's interesting here that it would become a point Almost an added victory on Korihor's part. I even, oh, it was easy to convince men to do what they want to do. I mean, they do call it the natural man after all, right? Maybe that isn't just meant to be gender neutral or gender inclusive. Men do seem to be more natural than women. Believe me, I am not saying that to be patronizing towards women or derogatory towards men. That's simply the statistics. Whether in ecclesiology or sociology or psychology or criminology, Men seem to have more issues. But here, with this blame and belittling, since women do tend to feel fear and shame, just like men do, and with questioned beliefs and excused behaviors, even women were brought into this trap, lifting up their heads in their wickedness. No more blushing cheeks, committing whoredoms, it says in 18. Now we start to see one of the specific sins that Korihor must have wanted to justify for himself and for others. Remember the three great temptations from Lucifer, the same three Nephi identifies in the great and abominable church, the same three that characterized the wicked of Ammonihah, the same three that Jacob condemned among the Nephites of his day. It's physical appetite, whoredoms right there. And as we'll see later, the other two are waiting in the wings, pride, and materialism or worldliness. It's always those three. Well, they're falling into it. 
And just like truth wants to spread, so does darkness. And so in verse 19, now Korihor goes on to the next city. Unfortunately for him, he picked the wrong group. He went to Jershon. And remember who lives there? Yeah, the anti-Nephite Lehi's. People that never did fall away. People that were firm in their faith. Ironically, people that would never lift a finger to defend themselves physically, but boy, will they do anything to defend themselves spiritually. In verse 20, they were more wise than many of the Nephites were because they took him and bound him and carried him before Ammon, who was the high priest over that people. It's like, oh yeah, I buried my sword, but I've still got some rope left. Bind him up and bring him to the high priest. Now in verse 21, he caused that he should be carried out of the land. So Ammon kicks him out. Public nuisance, I suppose. He goes over to Gideon. Also not a good choice. Remember back in Alma chapter 7? That's when Alma is teaching the people of Gideon and realizing, man, you guys are so much more faithful and valiant and righteous than the people in Zarahemla were. I'm going to teach you some of the best doctrine you'll find anywhere in the Book of Mormon. Again, in the two places where the most righteous people are, Korahor just cannot find a toehold. Demonizing church leaders? Oh no, we love them. They're not putting us under their thumb. Belittling righteousness? Oh, I, I pay that no heed. I feel no shame for partaking of this fruit. It's so delicious. My, my red cheeks, oh, that, that's just, just juice because I've been partaking so deliciously. There, there, there's no blushing there at all. Altered beliefs? Oh, no. We know the truth, and the truth is setting us free. Excused behaviors? There's either no bad behavior to excuse, or it has been excused through our repentance and our faith in the atonement of Jesus Christ. So, Jershon, no success. Gideon? Not much success. A little more than the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, but not much. He was taken, bound, carried before the high priest there, and the chief judge over the land. Now we're starting to see some church and state kind of issues. In fact, I'm not exactly sure how it worked with Jershon. Perhaps because they're former Lamanites, maybe it's a different political kind of rule, I'm not sure. Because we only see Ammon, their high priest, it's only the church that's factoring into this discussion. Whereas in Gideon, you're going to get both high priest and chief judge. And then when we get to Zarahemla, playing with the big boys now, then you get the high priest, Alma, and the chief judge as well. And in each case, by the way, it's always the spiritual side that leads out. It's almost like the chief judge needs to be there each time, almost like government oversight that we want to make sure no crimes have been committed. Is this a civic issue or is it a religious one? Remember, we saw that back in Mosiah 26 when King Mosiah and Alma were kind of hot potatoing back and forth. Is this your issue or is this mine? And it ended up being just a religious one. Well, same thing is happening here. With the exception of Jershon, with the people of Anti-Nephi-Lehi, in both Gideon and Zarahemla, both church and state are represented. But since the state has jurisdiction over crimes, and to this point at least, Korohor hasn't committed any, then they're going to step back and let the church do its thing. It'll be the high priest in each instance, Godona in round two, Alma in round three, that leads out in all of this. I think that's fascinating, that the chief judge over this part of the land in Gideon, or the chief judge over all of the land, they don't step in. They know their boundaries as well. We're not here to establish religion, and we're not here to interfere with the free exercise either.
That's good First Amendment constitutionalism. So in a way, both groups are wise, both in Jershon and in Gideon. They take them to their spiritual leader. Some of these questions I don't know the answers to. Some of these challenges I don't know if I can handle. Let me get some help from people who might have more experience in these areas. Now in Gideon, what's the high priest's approach? His name's Gedona, it says in 23. But we really don't hear him talk except in verse 22. And he just asks Korahor questions. Why do you do this? Why do you teach that? Why do you speak against this? And then he can't get another word in edgewise. Korahor just goes off from 23 through 28, reiterating the same four issues that we've been seeing all along. By the time he pauses to catch his breath, 29, the high priest and the chief judge, they see the hardness of his heart. They see that he would revile even against God. That surprises them both. And so they don't make any reply to his words. This is like Jesus before Herod. You don't deserve a single syllable. So they don't say anything. Maybe it's above their pay grade. Maybe they simply know that this is a case that is beyond our ability to help. Wow, the hardness of this man's heart. Reviling against God himself. I don't think there's anything that we can do here. It's like your general care physician saying, yeah, for this one, you're going to need to see a specialist. This is disease that has reached the stage that is beyond my ability to cure you. So they bind him, deliver him to the officers, and send him to the land of Zarahemla. And it's there that he meets Alma and the chief judge who is governor over all the land. Perhaps Nephiha has passed away by now because they don't refer to him by name anymore. But even before the big guns, Korahor is not intimidated at all. I guess if you're not concerned about God, then why would you be concerned about his servants? And so he goes on to blaspheme. In 31, he rises up in great swelling words before Alma and reviles the priests and teachers, accusing them of leading away the people after, here's that word again, silly traditions of their fathers for the sake of glutting on the labors of the people. Now from 32 to 42, we see Alma's response, and it's awesome. He doesn't patiently bite his lip like Gadona did. He jumps straight into it, and he calls Korahor on it. I love this. Kind of cut through the fog and go, what are you talking about? For a man who's relying on the power of rhetoric, if I can just say things that will convince people to feel certain things or think certain things that are all false, I love how Alma just cuts through it all and goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know that we don't glut ourselves upon the labors of this people. He calls him out on it. And this doesn't have to be contentious, but to call someone out, do you really believe that? Do you, do you really believe what you're saying here? That's kind of what Gadona was doing back in verse 22, when he kept asking him, why are you doing these things? But Alma goes even deeper. Do you even believe what you're saying? In fact, let me answer it for you. You don't. You know that what you're saying is false. You know you're making this stuff up to try to trick people. You know better than this, Korahor. So in 32, when he says, thou knowest, and then in 35, when he says, thou of thyself knowest, he's calling him out. Why do you keep saying these things when you know they're not true? You see what Korahor's hoping? He's hoping nobody calls him out on it. Korahor is banking on his hearers not getting past his swelling words. Not stopping to think and analyze, is what he's saying true, or is he just playing upon my fears or my shame? Is that really what I believe? 
Is this really how I should behave? Is he justified in these explanations? Is there really no such thing as crime or sin? Wait, wait, wait. He keeps, I mean, it sounds pretty good. It is flattering words. And these swelling words can come across as pretty convincing. And he's banking on it. For the last year or so, I've been reading every single thing I can find from Thomas Paine. Probably the father of American skepticism. And almost everything I can find about people responding to his anti-Christian attacks. And it's amazing how many of his respondents were saying, there's nothing for me to even fight. You're making no arguments. You're just asserting things. Talk about swelling words. Give me something to respond to, doubting Thomas. One late 18th century writer even said to other readers, I know what Paine's rhetoric can do. It can really work you up into an emotional frenzy. But pause as you're reading The Age of Reason and think your way through what he's saying. It's almost like let the sensationalism settle down a little. And once the emotion that he's roused in you has passed and you can think logically through what he's been saying, this is not reasonable at all. Get past the rhetoric. Get past the emotional appeals. Korihor was banking on the hope that nobody would. I see that so often in social media, in comments on posts that are attacking the church or questioning policies or things. And I think, wow, social media promotes shallow and unoriginal thinking. It specializes in swelling words and trumped up emotion. The irony is that most who attack the church accuse Mormons of not thinking. And yet so often there's not a lot of thinking going on on that side either. This is just, whoa, 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 stop, stop, Alma says. You know better than this. I, I am seeing right through your swelling words. To that specific issue, your accusation that we glut ourselves, this is part of the demonizing, the, the blaming side of things. You know it's false, so let me just tackle that one first. This will be an easy place to begin since, since you don't even believe it. So he says to him in 32, I've labored even from the commencement of the reign of the judges until now with mine own hands for my support. I saw King Mosiah do that. I heard King Benjamin had done that. I've been paying my own way in spite of all my travels to declare the word of God. Remember person script that I was starving in Ammonihah? I mean, yes, fasting for many days, but I wonder how much of that was a forced fast until Amulek finally let me into his home and ministered unto me there. Verse 33, notwithstanding the many labors which I have performed in the church, I've never received so much as one senine for my labor. It was a lay ministry for them as well. My brethren haven't gotten it. I mean, they do for the judgment seat, but that's only according to the law of our time. Taxes pay our judges, but tithes do not pay our priests. 34, and if we do not receive anything for our labors in the church, why doth it profit us to labor in the church, save it were to declare the truth that we may have rejoicings in the joy of our brethren. I love sharing that verse with people in the mission field when they sat back shocked that we weren't getting paid for all the work we did as missionaries. Yeah, I always used to laugh going, oh, minimum wage? Oh, you ain't seen nothing like our minimum wage. In fact, ours is negative wage. We're paying to do this. But what's my salary? Rejoicing in the joy of my brethren. The same was true for Alma. And you see, you know this. 35, you know this of yourself. 
In fact, I think part of this is even bigger pictures, to talk about the truth of the message that they're teaching. Because he's not there just to defend himself from accusations of greed. He's there to defend Jesus Christ and his gospel. But this has something to do with that, because we are his servants. I'm his chief priest. And unlike Nehor with his priestcraft, I am not beholden to people for popularity. I don't depend on them for support, which means I'm not a mercenary. I'm a servant of God and not a servant of the people. Oh, yes, I serve them, obviously, but I serve at God's command, not theirs. I teach them what God wants them to know. I don't teach them what they want to hear. My words are not flattering like yours are. Often the words I say are not what they want to hear, but it is what they need to hear. So on the one hand, I'm not doing this for me, but I'm not even doing it for them as far as the natural them is concerned. I'm doing it for them as far as the spiritual them is concerned. I think most of us as Latter-day Saints take a lay ministry for granted because it's just what we're used to. But my time at Divinity School, it was shocking to explain that to people of other faiths that were studying for the ministry, that they would be paid for. I'm not saying they were there as mercenaries either. They were not. Amazing people. But I did sense from them, I can only teach certain things to my congregations because otherwise they do not have ears to hear. What a blessing that we do not have church leaders who are glutting themselves on the contributions of the faithful saints. Even where living allowances are offered. Number one, they are minuscule compared to what leaders of other organizations would make. Even nonprofit organizations for the most part. And number two, they never asked for those positions to begin with. There is no craft among our high priests. And that lends gravity to the gospel that they preach. Their messages are not mercenary either. Alma then spends the next few verses asking clarifying questions of Korahor. Most of them having to do with kind of testing, probing the belief of Korahor. Do you really believe this? 35, believest thou that we deceive this people? Korahor says, yeah. Okay. 37, believest thou there's a God? No. Okay. 39, will you deny again there is no God and deny the Christ? I, I just want to be clear on this. What Alma is doing here is forcing Korahor to articulate his position. You see, what makes polemics often so easy is it's just attack, attack, attack. And there's nothing for them to defend. They can stay on the offensive the whole time. And yet for an Alma here, not even turning apologist to defend him. You know, he, he just, I just want to ask you some questions first. Again, I'm not saying contentious or disputational, but let's turn and can I figure out a little bit better where you're coming from? It's like you're the one that always comes with the questions, trying to make us explain everything. Well, I just want to make sure I know where you're coming from in all of this. You didn't really believe what you said about clerical greed, since you, I know that you know better. Do you, did you really believe these other things that you were saying? I, I just want to know for sure. I mean, what you were saying about glutting ourselves on the labors of others, you know that that one didn't have any legs to stand on. So I'm just wondering, do you really want to go with these other things? Do you want to stand behind these other things, or do you want to backpedal on those as well? But this time, Korahor does stand firm. I still think you deceive the people, and I still say there's no God. Okay, well, now that I know where you're coming from, 
39, what's the first thing Alma does? For behold, I say unto you, I know there is a God, and also that Christ shall come. First thing he does, he offers testimony. I mean, my whole life is a testimony of this. That's what being a lay clergyman tends to say. I, I do put my money where my mouth is. But let me put my mouth where my lack of money is, too. I know it's true. I know there's a God. I know Christ will come. And then again, turning the tables somewhat, or at least shifting the burden of proof. He says in 40, what evidence have ye that there is no God or that Christ cometh not? I say unto you, you have none, save it be your word only. So is this just a, he said, he said, I say there is, you say there isn't. Because that's all you've got so far. This is testimony versus testimony. And you keep accusing us of not having any evidence on our side. Well, what evidence can you produce on yours? You've made some pretty lofty prophecies yourself, right? God is a being who no one has known. Well, now you know that I know. And that never can be known. Well, what evidence do you have of any of that? In your supposed omniscience, Korahor, have you seen the inventory of eternity? And God wasn't on the list, huh? You see, my own experience would speak otherwise in verse 41. I have all things as a testimony that these things are true. And so do you. Ye also have all things as a testimony unto you that they are true. So you still want to deny? Believest thou that these things are true? Behold, I know that thou believest. It's like I recognize the same thing in Amulek. Who knew but would not know. Remember, that's what Amulek said about himself. Korahor, you know better. You know you were lying about our graft, and now you know that you believe what I'm saying. The problem is, and this would all be discernment, I'm not saying this should be our approach if someone is struggling in their testimony. You don't just go and say, oh, come on, you know better than that. Honor their honesty. Give them the benefit of the doubt. But in Alma's case, cut into the chase with this antichrist, Thou art possessed with a lying spirit. You've put off the Spirit of God. No wonder you'll fall for this virtual reality of life without sin, because you've eliminated the real reality, the true reality that the Spirit of God teaches all of us. Somehow you have silenced the voice of conscience. That's impressive. Even for women, you've silenced the voice of conscience. Incredible what you've pulled off here, Korahor. Because conscience doesn't even require the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's simply the light of Christ. But if you have put off that light, if you've darkened it, if you've put off the Spirit of God, if you've replaced it with a lying spirit, because that's all it is. We're listening to different spirits, right? Different ideologies. When they say, oh, yours is self-induced, it's like, well, isn't yours? When they say, oh, yours is just socially constructed, you want to go, well, isn't yours? I mean, while we're denying absolute truth, wouldn't that make yours relative also? Whatever spirit you're listening to, whatever confirmation bias, whatever self-induced, whatever socially constructed reality, whatever ideology, whatever doctrine, whatever philosophy you're following, eh, there's going to be truth and error. You've chosen error. The devil now has power over you. He carries you about. He works devices that he may destroy the children of God. You see, I know what it's like to be an instrument to. 
God works devices through me. I'm an instrument in his hand. Well, now the adversary is working devices in you, and you are an instrument in his hand. God uses me to save his children. The devil uses you to destroy them. Korahor, still unapologetic, says to Alma, if thou wilt show me a sign that I may be convinced that there is a God. See, I don't, I don't believe in faith. I want absolute knowledge. Convince me, show me, prove to me using my narrowly confined empiricism. Make every paint color tactile and scratch and sniff so that I can mix them successfully without having to use my eyes. Show me a sign. Then I'll be convinced of God's power. Then I'll be convinced of the truth of your words. Alma calls him on that one too. Wait, signs? You want signs? You have had enough. It reminds me of the people that just had the loaves and the fishes multiplied to them. And the Pharisees come aboard saying, well, show us a sign. And it's like, what more do you need? My whole ministry has been sign after sign. Well, our own existence is sign after sign of God's existence. You've had signs enough. Will you tempt your God? Will ye say, show unto me a sign when you have the testimony? Now notice the list of witnesses that Alma is going to call to the witness stand. The list of evidences that he's going to bring up. Exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C. First, the testimony of all these thy brethren. That's why I offered you mine to begin with. I know these things true. But it's not just us. How about all the holy prophets? Them too. How about the scriptures? They're laid before you. In fact, let's just pull out the whole list. All things denote there is a God. Even the earth and all things that are upon the face of it. Yea, and its motion. Yea, and also all the planets which move in their regular form. Do witness that there is a supreme creator. Now, in theology, we often call this the argument from design. Or the teleological argument. Teleology is the study of what ultimately comes at the end. Telos, the end, like telescope, seen far, far away. The world exists, we exist, the universe exists. There must be a purpose in all that. What's it headed to? Or other side, where did it come from? If there's a creation, there must have been a creator. This was William Paley's famous example of a watch discovered in the desert Well, there must have been a watchmaker at some point. Some talk about the first cause or the unmoved mover. These are debates that philosophers have had for millennia over the existence of God. Others have used what they call the ontological argument. Aquinas preferred the teleological, but people like St. Anselm or Descartes preferred the ontological, that there is this inborn conception that we seem to have of something better and bigger than we are. And if that idea exists in us, then wouldn't that presuppose the reality of that idea existing outside of us? Others have suggested what they call the moral argument, that if there is some kind of conscience, some inner morality, some goodness within, then shouldn't there be some superlative without What would the ultimate good be, the highest good? What are we reaching towards? The two main arguments, creation without and morality within, are best summed up by what's inscribed on the tombstone of the great philosopher Immanuel Kant. In both German and Russian it reads, Two things fill the mind with always new and ever-increasing admiration and awe. 
the more often and more intensely the thinking is occupied with it. Now this admiration and awe would be towards God. And the more we think about these two things, the more deeply we think about them, the more that sense of worship, of awe before God stirs within us. And these were the two things he lists. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. Beautiful in its simplicity. Here, Alma is speaking of the starry heavens above. Like Adam learned, just after being expelled from Eden, this is Moses 6.63, that all things are created to bear witness of me. Like I know you're going to miss me in our time together in Eden, Adam, but everything that you see will be a reminder. It all will point back. In Alma's case, Trekorhor, same idea. Everything around you. Maybe I can't go with the moral argument for God with you because you've put off the Spirit of God, replaced it with a lying spirit, somehow smothered the conscience within you. There seems to be no moral law within, so let's go with starry heavens above. Now, I will admit, throughout the history of philosophy, every philosophical argument for the existence of God has eventually been countered with some kind of philosophical argument for the non-existence of God. Skeptics can often go just as deep philosophically as believers can. That's why you end up with something like Pascal's Wager, where it's like, well, maybe it does just come down to the wager on this and weighing risks and rewards and so on. Again, Pascal's Wager is fascinating. And yes, other skeptics have even tried to pick that apart as well. This is an age-old battle, right? Which is why, to me, even though Alma ends with the argument from design in 44, where he began is really what it boils down to. Personal testimony based on personal experience. I know there is a God and also that Christ shall come. At the end of the day, that's where we stand. In fact, as I've had conversations with people that are skeptical all the way down to the core, I don't try to prove the existence of God with them at all. We can talk teleological. We can talk ontological. We can talk moral. There's all kinds of philosophy there. But it can all fall before an ardent skepticism. Or it can all bow before a humble testimony of personal experience with God. See, then I'm no longer talking about rain and trying to explain the sound on the roof and the sight of the puddles splashing. No, I'm standing in the downpour. And no amount of explanation to someone else will convince them quite as much as inviting them to come out and stand in the rain alongside you. Until they do that, even if they accept the philosophical arguments, they will be unsatisfying compared to what they could have through experience of their own. But that's going to take a softened heart. That's why in 45, when Alma asks again, you're still going about leading away the hearts of this people. Will you still deny against all these witnesses, the witness of a lay ministry, the witness of prophetic testimony, the witness of Holy Scripture, the witness of creation itself? Stubborn to the end, Korahor says, yeah, I'll still deny you sh until you show me the sign. And then 46, Alma says, behold, I am grieved. Not angry, 
Important to understand the tone behind these words. I'm grieved because of the hardness of your heart. Yea, that ye will still resist the spirit of the truth, that thy soul may be destroyed. You see, it's not just the blindness of Korahor's mind that he's after. He's saying, really? The argument from design didn't work? Who are you, David Hume? I mean, no. It's the hardness of heart that is so devastating to Alma. Wow. You won't allow yourself to feel the reality of any of this, will you? You see, even looking at the earth is not meant to be a logical thing. It's meant to be a spiritual awakening. It's not meant to be a rational acknowledgement. I mean, apologies to William Paley, but, oh, there's a, look at this watch that I found. There must be a watchmaker. Now, a better analogy would have been, there is a masterpiece here. Wow, I just want to know the painter. To feel awe in the presence of creation. Not to have logic force skepticism to relent. It's a spiritual testimony that he's encouraging all along, no matter which of the so-called arguments is being used. That's why philosophy will never be enough. That's why Alma is after the heart and not just the mind. Because God is after the heart and not just the mind. It's the softened heart that receives the greater portion of the word until he knows God in his fullness. It's the hardened heart that knows nothing concerning his mysteries. Even the mystery of his existence. It's like Bruce R. McConkie always used to say, can you, can you picture this in, the, in a McConkie-esque deep voice? That God stands revealed or he remains forever unknown. That's truth. There could be logical acknowledgement. There could be a suspension of disbelief. You could say, okay, well, all things seem to point to the fact or the possibility that God exists. I think I'll opt on that end with Pascal's wager. But to feel, to soften one's heart, to make room within for awe, for transcendence, for divinity. There's a well-known book in religious studies circles over 100 years old by now, written by a German theologian, not a member of our church. His name is Rudolf Otto, and he wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy. He was writing at a time when enlightenment was crowning rationalism king at the expense of faith, when modernism was pushing for pure humanity at the expense of true divinity. And in this beautiful book, he just wanted to make room for the holy, the numinous, he called it. And one of my favorite paragraphs comes right at the end. He says this, and there seems to be a polemicist versus apologist kind of sense here, a Korahor versus Alma confrontation. Otto says, there can naturally be no defense of the worth and validity of such religious intuitions of pure feeling that will convince a person who is not prepared to take the religious consciousness itself for granted. In other words, for those that don't have any room in their epistemology for spiritual witness, then none of this stuff is going to be sufficient. My testimony will fall on deaf ears because it bumped up against a hardened heart. Mere general argument, even moral demonstrations, are in this case useless, are indeed for obvious reasons impossible from the outset 
You see why the teleological or ontological arguments, those general arguments, Otto said, or even the moral argument, the moral demonstration he mentioned, you see why those are impossible or at least inadequate for someone that won't even allow for the possibility of divine reality and spiritual truth? Now, that's the bad news. Alma could not reach Korahor. But here's the good news from Otto. On the other hand, the criticisms and confutations attempted by such a person are unsound from the start. That's why Korahor couldn't convince Alma either. Both seem to be immovable objects. One, because he did not allow for spiritual truth, and the other, because he had had experience with it. So again, as Otto said, the criticisms and confutations attempted by such a person as Korahor are unsound from the start. His weapons are far too short to touch his adversary. For the assailant is always standing right outside the arena. See, the arena is God. It's divinity. It's spiritual truth. And yet a Korahor refuses to step inside it. If these intuitions, these separate responses to the impress upon the spirit of the gospel story and the central person of it, if these intuitions are immune from rational criticism, they are equally unaffected by the fluctuating results of biblical exegesis and the labored justifications of historical apologetics. For they are possible without these, springing as they do from first-hand personal divination. Now, that's a lot of technical language with phrases that would not roll off our lips in fast and testimony meaning. But you see what Otto's trying to say here? It's simply the bad news, good news of what we're seeing in Alma 30. It's like Alma and Korahor are living in two different worlds. Korahor is living indoors and refuses to look outside. So no wonder there are no starry heavens to see above him. He's put off the Spirit of God and replaced it with a lying spirit. No wonder there is no moral law to feel within. Alma, on the other hand, lives outside in awe of the planets, their motion, their regular form, in awe of their witness of the Creator. He lives with a softened heart, so he feels the moral law within him. Best of all, as evidenced by his testimony here, he has experienced what Otto called first-hand personal divination. True believers and true skeptics at the end of the day will simply have to agree to disagree without becoming disagreeable. To simply say we have different premises, so of course we've reached different conclusions. We live in two different universes. I understand where you're coming from. I hope you can understand where I'm coming from. I'm not here to deny your experiences, nor force you to accept mine, but I hope that you'll return the favor. I have had some conversations with people who honestly, as far as I can tell, have honestly said, I don't feel anything. I don't, I don't know if there's, I don't think there's truth out there. I don't think there's a God. And I will often say to them, I want to pay you the compliment of believing what you just said. I've often used the example of colorblindness. If you legitimately look around and cannot tell your reds from your greens, if they really do seem like shades of gray to you, and you're not just being obstinate, then I hope that you'll return the favor and pay me the compliment 
of believing me when I say that I really do, that I do see color. And it's breathtaking. If you are willing to take my word for it, to take the holy prophet's word for it, to take the scripture's word for it, all thy brethren's word for it, even if you are colorblind, perhaps spirituality really is another sense that some people may be lacking to a degree. You can still live in a world of color. And I promise, I will never get tired or frustrated with you asking me if your clothing matches, if you really can't see which colors are on them. If you'll have the humility to ask what I see, I'll have the patience every time you ask me. If only Korahor had had a softer heart, any of those evidences and witnesses could have been sufficient. But with the absence of a softened heart, that's what this whole thing boils down to, in my opinion, is that phrase in 46, because of the hardness of your heart, because your resistance to the spirit of truth, then there's no hope. There's nothing I can say to convince you. Now, you left yourself with an option of one way to convince you, but even that will not convert you. And that's the biggest difference. It's your soul that I'm most worried about, not your mind. See that at the end of 46. It's the destruction of your soul that is causing my grief and convincing your mind without converting your soul will not make a difference. We see that unfold. 47. Alma is resigned to his fate, or in this case, Korahor's fate. He says, It is better that thy soul should be lost than that thou shouldst be the means of bringing many souls down to destruction by thy lying and by thy flattering words. Sounds a little like Nephi and Laban, right? Better that one man should perish than a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. He still doesn't take matters into his own hands. Again, this is the religious arm, not the political the religious can excommunicate. This is all in section 134 of the Doctrine and Covenants. The religious can separate someone from their society, but cannot inflict any kind of physical punishment for spiritual sin. That's going to be more of the physical punishment for civil crime. Both church and state have a role to play, but they're different. But what he can do is leave it in God's hands. And so he does. He says in 47, if thou wilt deny again, I'm still giving you chance after chance after chance to change. God will smite you. I won't, but God shall smite thee. Thou shalt become dumb, that thou shalt never open thy mouth anymore, that thou shalt not deceive this people anymore. In this case, the punishment will fit the crime. Or we could say the curse will fit the sin. You've been using your mouth in the wrong way. It needs to stop. Your lying tongue cannot be loosed. No more swelling words. In 48, Korahor bends a little. He backpedals just a step. I do not deny the existence of God. Well, it seems like you've been doing that for the last few pages. But I do not believe that there is a God. I'm going from a positive atheism to a negative agnosticism. I was pretty adamant. There is no God. No one can know it. No one ever will know it. He's never been known, never will be, to a, well, I'm not going to deny the existence. I guess the possibility is out there. I just don't believe. And I say that you don't know. So rather than an atheist versus a theist, let's just have two 
agnostics talking together, shall we? I'll stop saying you can't know if you stop saying that you do. Fair? Fair or not, I'm not going to believe until you show me a sign. 49 Alma says, fine, I'll give unto thee a sign, thou shalt be struck dumb according to my words. And I say in the name of God, again, this is all about him. You need to know that this is his power, not just that I have some kind of power to do these things. In the name of God, you shall be struck dumb, that ye shall no more have utterance. And as soon as he said it, verse 50, Korahor was struck dumb. 51, now the chief judge steps in. Probably been biting his tongue the whole time, knowing this isn't his issue. But he says, art thou convinced of the power of God? In whom did ye desire that Alma should show forth his sign? Would ye that he should afflict others to show unto thee a sign? That's the irony of so many who attack faith. They want other people to put their money where their mouth is, but often hesitate to do it themselves. Korhor, unable to speak, writes in verse 52, I know that I am dumb, for I cannot speak. That's the first thing I can acknowledge. What do I know as a result? I know that nothing save it were the power of God could bring this upon me. Believe me, nobody could shut me up. Not Ammon, not Gadona, not Alma, but God just did. And then the ultimate admission. And I always knew that there was a God. You did. Alma was right from the beginning. That gift of discernment came through. You did know. You knew you were lying. You knew you were deceiving. I hear people all the time talk about their doubt with words like, I'm trying to be intellectually honest here. And when they are, that's awesome. But if they have the intellectual honesty to admit their doubts, do they have the intellectual honesty to admit their faith? Or have they conveniently forgotten the experiences they've had in the past? I will honor your new question marks, but please honor your old exclamation points. I will acknowledge the things that we don't know, but are you willing to acknowledge the things that you do? In this case, how did he get to that point? Verse 53 tells so much. The devil hath deceived me. And that's the first step to then using me as a deceptive tool for others. Remember, that's the, that's the order for the Lord too. He converts the missionary and then sends the missionary forth. The devil just does the opposite. He deceives the tool, the device, right? We saw that earlier. The devil worketh devices, just like the Lord uses instruments. But convincing the person of the plan is the first step. The devil deceived me. He appeared unto me in the form of an angel. This is so ironic. An angel coming to say there's no God. Hmm. The supernatural to deny the existence of the supernatural. Uh, don't say there's logic on this side. Sin makes you stupid, as Sherry Dew always says. But this devil as angel says, go and reclaim this people. They have all gone astray after an unknown God. So go reclaim them. They're the ones that are off the path. Bring them back. He said unto me, there is no God. And he taught me that which I should say. No wonder he needed to be struck dumb. I've taught his words, and then this phrase we saw earlier. I taught them because they were pleasing unto the carnal mind. It's what I wanted to hear. It's what the people wanted to hear. And then this interesting insight at the end of 53. I taught them even until I had much success. You see, repetition 
often leads to persuasion. But persuasion often ends up leading to self-deception. That's what happened to Korahor. I taught them until I had much success, insomuch that I verily believed that they were true. And for this cause I withstood the truth, even until I have brought this great curse upon me. You see the irony there? I didn't believe it at first. I knew it was false. But man, people were falling for it hook, line, and sinker. It's exactly what they wanted to hear. They were lifting up their heads in iniquity, having the time of their lives, no shame, no guilt, no sin, no law. How do you think that made them feel? And as a result, how do you think that made me feel? It's kind of intoxicating to tell people what they want to hear because they'll end up doing the same thing in return. I loved that popularity. Priestcraft and popularity can be pretty heady stuff. And before I knew it, I was believing it too. That is the power of self-deception. You get enough people in the same room telling the same lie, and you start to forget that you're the one that started spreading it to begin with. Then that last phrase we saw of him withstanding the truth, that's the hard heart that Alma bumped up against. Withstanding truth, fighting it stubbornly, and then bringing upon himself this great curse. That's always the way curses come. We bring them. Now, ironically, with barely a period between them, verse 54, Korahor immediately says, Alma, please pray to God that the curse might be taken from me. Now that I believe in him, now that I've confessed my sins, can we jump straight through the hoops and get on to forgiveness? Now, as we've seen several times already, Alma does know the quickness of words like snatch, right? That God can snatch us out of our sins. But Alma also used the word wading through his afflictions and repenting nigh unto death. That doesn't sound like this has happened yet. I mean, you've been dumb for what? I don't know, a couple of minutes? You see, Korhor, you want to change the consequence, but you haven't yet changed your character. This is the same Alma who, back in chapter 12, talks about time needing to be prolonged to make life a probationary slash preparatory state, to give us time to really change not just our deeds, but our disposition. That hasn't happened here. And so Alma says to him in 55, no, 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 no. If this curse should be taken from thee, thou wouldst again lead away the hearts of this people. Again, you have not had time to change. But I'll leave it in the Lord's hands, as I always do. And 56 God seemed to agree with Alma yet again because the curse was not taken off of Korahor. Instead, he was cast out. And then, interesting detail, he went about from house to house begging for his food. What an irony there. He's always been begging. From the first moment we met him, please give me your support. Give me your attention. Give me your allegiance. Believe. That's what priestcraft is. So here's the irony, these parallels now. You have both Korahor and Alma living on the support of people. There's lay ministry for you, right? And the righteous people of the church do support Alma. He supports himself as much as he can. When he's out serving in other cities, people like an Amulek will come and help him. Meanwhile, how much loyalty is there on the other side? You'd think that Korahor, having been so popular, helping people lift up their heads in their iniquity, all these men and women that listened to him, you'd think he'd have a lot of friends to go back to. But that's not the case. It's like the prodigal son. 
If he wasted his inheritance in riotous living, it seems like that would be a good way to make friends, right? All the drinks are on me, right? I mean, he's the one paying the bills. But as soon as the money's gone, there's nobody left for him. He's there with the pigs. And the same is true of Korahor. 57, the knowledge of what had happened in the Korahor was immediately published throughout all the land. He did become a missionary of sorts. Unfortunately, his was a cautionary tale rather than a tale of redemption. Yea, the proclamation was sent forth by the chief judge to all the people in the land, declaring unto those who had believed in the words of Korahor that they must speedily repent, lest the same judgments would come on them. That's all they needed to know. That was sign enough for them. That was witness. They were convinced of the wickedness of Korahor. Therefore, they were all converted again unto the Lord. And this put an end to the iniquity after the manner of Korahor. Still didn't put an end to him, though. He did go about from house to house begging food for his support. But then this interesting aftermath. As he went forth among the people, yea, among a people who had separated themselves from the Nephites. So these are to be the people that are most like Korahor. That's what he'd been after all along, trying to separate people from the truth. Well, people that you'd think should have been on his side, they called themselves Zoramites. That's who we'll meet in chapter 31 and beyond. As he went forth amongst them, behold, he was run upon and trodden down even until he was dead. What a poetic irony. Remember back in 1 Nephi 19 when it talks about the unrighteous trample the God of Israel under their feet because they set him at naught and hearken not to his words? Well, here's the end of a man who was doing just that. Some poetic justice there. And trampled down by people who just a few pages before probably would have lifted him up. What's Mormon's takeaway? Verse 60. And thus we see, and I hope the we applies, the end of him who perverteth the ways of the Lord. And thus we see that the devil will not support his children at the last day, but doth speedily drag them down to hell. You see, there's no robe or ring or fatted calf for the prodigal who doesn't come home because there's no home in that far country to celebrate in. There is no loyalty on the other side. I mean, can you picture someone like a Korohor passing on, going to the other side, and there's the adversary waiting to welcome him. We always envision the Lord throwing his arms around us. Well, do we picture that same kind of love and loyalty on the other side? Can you picture Lucifer saying, Ah, oh, Korahor, my son, you have been such... Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Or in this case, well done, thou evil and faithful servant. Faithful to me, anyway. Celebrate with me. You did a great job. See all these souls that you brought to me. How great shall be your joy with them in the kingdom of your father, me. No. There is no love loss if there is some kind of a reunion there, I do not picture the adversary applauding this hometown hero. Perhaps that's what a Korahor might have expected. But I would see instead the devil saying something like, what, you want me to congratulate you? Okay, you brought many souls down to me. Well, you're down here with them. There's no enter into the rest of your Lord. It is enter into the misery of your master. What, am I supposed to thank you? 
You fought against me in the war in heaven, and I will never forgive you for that. Haunting thoughts to ponder. To conclude this chapter, though, before we switch gears and move into chapter 31, can I offer a few of my own thus we sees? Because yes, I do see the sad end of a Korahor, but I also see the glorious progress of an Alma, who had been something of a Korahor himself long ago. What had changed for him? A softened heart, a willingness to stop withstanding the truth, an openness to the Spirit of the Lord that brought about a rejection of the lying spirit that he had entertained previously. Thus we see that people can change, but that not everyone chooses to. Thus we see the dangerous power of fear and of shame when we allow other people to work those emotions within us. Thus we see the danger of altered beliefs and excused behaviors. Thus we see the need to open ourselves to personal experiences with God. Brothers and sisters, the world is full of Korahors. I've been reading their books and broadsides, their pamphlets and periodicals, their philosophical treatises for years. And I'm grateful that the Spirit of God and my own personal experiences with God have allowed me to see through the smoke at the great and spacious building that lies behind them. Most importantly, I'm grateful for the taste of the fruit of the tree of life that jolts me back into a reality of where true joy, true happiness, true redemption is to be found. May we see through and work past the swelling words that are thrown in our faces and instead opt for what Alma will soon call a swelling heart filled with a testimony of God. That is how we become unshaken.